Hello. Back in May, I mentioned on Twitter and Facebook that I was attending the annual Medieval Congress at Kalamazoo, Michigan, and taking part in two roundtable discussions on Tolkien. Several of you asked if I would share the papers that I read at the conference, so I figured I'd do that. The first paper I gave was at a panel on The Hobbit. Douglas Anderson, editor of The Annotated Hobbit, was presiding, and the panel also included John D. Ratliff, author of The History of The Hobbit. My paper was titled The Poetry of the Hobbit, and a lot of the material in this paper will be somewhat familiar to those of you who have listened to my Hobbit lectures. The Poetry of the Hobbit I think it's safe to say that Tolkien's poems are underrated. Many readers skip over them, some chuckle over them. This is, I believe, especially true of the Hobbit poems. The songs in The Hobbit are very rarely taken seriously as poetry. Even Tolkien's scholarship is too frequently guilty of skipping over the poems. Now, it's true, the poems are not, in general, profoundly moving literary experiences on their own ground. We can't really take them out of their context in the narrative. We can't, for instance, imagine Tolkien going around doing poetry readings just on the poems that are included in The Hobbit. However, if we take the poems in their narrative context, we will see that they're frequently quite complex, delicate, and sophisticated. If we look at how the poems interact with the story around them, we'll see that the poems don't just interrupt the narrative, they help to shape it, often by anticipating it. The first example that I'd like to look at is the song the goblins sing when they capture the dwarves in Bilbo. Clap, snap, the black, crack, grip. Grab, pinch, nab, and down, down to Goblin Town you go, my lad. Clash, crash, crush, smash, hammer and tongs, knocker and gongs, pound, pound, far underground, ho, ho, my lad. Swish, smack, whip, crack, batter and beat, yammer and bleat, work, work, nor dare to shirk, while goblins quaff and goblins laugh, round and round, far underground, below, my lad. This song provides a surprisingly comprehensive introduction to goblins. We can learn a great deal from this poem even before we think about its actual verbal content. The diction of these lines is harsh, explosive, and violent. After one line, clap, snap, the black crack, we scarcely need to be told that goblins are cruel, wicked, and bad-hearted. Just listen to their poetry, and we will be completely unsurprised to learn that explosions always delighted them. Almost every word in the first stanza is monosyllabic, and many are onomatopoetic. The lines are crude, primitive, and unlovely. Much of this poem is merely violent sounds turned into words. Again, we scarcely need to be told that they make no beautiful things. Notice also the syntax. In the first two lines, there are nine words, six of which are verbs. The first stanza is narrative of a sort, retelling the capture of the dwarves in Bilbo. But they aren't exactly telling the story. They're just reliving the action with cruel delight. Okay, but what is goblin culture like? What do they do when they're not capturing people? Second stanza. In the same ineluctable goblin poetic style, we learn that they apparently like noise and chaos and breaking things, but also that they are a mining and smithying culture like the dwarves. After this stanza, we already know that they can tunnel and mine as well as any but the most skilled dwarves, and we will be unsurprised to hear that they are usually untidy and dirty. Now, what are the values of goblin society? Third stanza. Here we see the pounding of hammers replaced with the cracking of whips. What is the primary difference between the smithcraft of dwarves and that of the goblins? The goblins are a people who get more pleasure out of driving slaves than working metal with their own hands. Look at how the goblins linger over the pleasures of lazing about and laughing mockingly while others are forced to do their work for them. 
They add two extra lines to the stanza to expand on it. They are lazy and cruel, and they take joy not in craftsmanship, but in the suffering of their captives. The vivid picture Tolkien paints for us in prose later of prisoners and slaves that have to work till they die for want of air and light has already been shown to us. The difference between the dwarf and goblin attitudes towards their workmanship can be seen by even a brief comparison of the songs that they sing about it. The dwarves lovingly describe the beauty of their handiwork in the song they sing in Bag End. The goblins don't even mention the products of their labor, or their slaves' labor, at all. But even just listening to their poetic styles will teach you all you need to know about the very different attitudes of dwarves and goblins. Listen to the dwarves. The dwarves of yore made mighty spells while hammers fell like ringing bells in places deep where dark things sleep in hollow halls beneath the fells. The dwarves' verse is both beautiful and ornate. In addition to the basic rhyme scheme, A-A-B-A, with the B-rhyme repeated internally in line 3, the verse contains several other interesting oral effects. Notice the alliteration in three of the four lines, Made Mighty, Deep Dark, and Hollow Halls. Both lines 2 and 4 also approach, without quite achieving, the internal rhyme we see in line 3, Fell, Bells, Halls, Fells. The sounds of the verse orally evoke the echoing of their hammers in the caves of the mountain. The goblins' verses describe the same activity, but crudely and with no real attention to artistry, pounding away on their monosyllables and their repetitive rhymes and near rhymes mercilessly. Clash, crash, crush, smash. The dwarves' musical simile comparing hammers to bells is retained, but transformed in the goblins' song into mere crudity and noise. Hammer and tongs, knocker and gongs. The dwarves and goblins may appear to have some interests in common, but it's easy to see how disparate and dissonant are their outlooks. We will get a good deal more information in prose later on, but by the end of the song we know almost everything we really need to know about goblin values, goblin practices, goblin aesthetics, and the basic political and social relationships between goblins and dwarves. In chapter 1, when the dwarves sing their song, we see the first example of a pattern that repeats itself on several other occasions in the book. We first get the story of the dwarves and Smaug told in poetic form, and afterwards it is retold in prose with further detail. Thorin draws attention to this before he goes on to give the prose explanation of their journey to Bilbo, remarking, Didn't you hear our song? Although Tolkien doesn't telegraph this relationship quite so plainly in the case of the goblin's song, we can see a similar relationship. Tolkien goes on to give a prose description of goblins and goblin culture, but if we pay attention, this passage is only review and elaboration. Through their song, we already know the goblins pretty well. Now the second poem I want to discuss is the poem that I suspect is one of the most skimmed-over poems in the whole book, the dwarves' wind poem that they sing in the house of Bjorn. The wind was on the withered heath, but in the forest stirred no leaf. Their shadows lay by night and day, and dark things silent crept beneath. The wind came down from mountains cold, and like a tide it roared and rolled. The branches groaned, the forest moaned, and leaves were laid upon the mold. The wind went on from west to east, all movement in the forest ceased. But shrill and harsh across the marsh its whistling voices were released. The grasses hissed. Their tassels bent, the reeds were rattling, on it went or shaken pool under heaven's cool, where racing clouds were torn and rent. It passed the lonely mountain bare and swept above the dragon's lair, there black and dark lay boulders stark, and flying smoke was in the air. 
It left the world and took its flight over the wide seas of the night. The moon set sail upon the gale, and stars were fanned to leaping light. Now, if people do skip this one, that seems quite understandable. Plot-wise, it seems almost perfectly superfluous. It sounds like a random poetic digression stuck in during a pronounced lull in the action of the story. If any poem in the book seems like dead weight, this is it. The first clue that we get to the relevance or significance of this song is once more in its metrical structure. The song has exactly the same poetic structure as the song the dwarves sing in chapter 1. Note the similarity in meter and rhyme scheme, for instance. The dwarves' first song was about their treasure, the dragon, and their quest. Perhaps this song also, sung like the first one, in the dark after dinner as the dwarves prepare to set out on a major stage in their journey, relates to their quest. The song itself, though it may seem at first more abstract and lyrical than the dwarves' first song, actually contains a consistent narrative. The song is not just about wind blowing in various places, it's about the progress of one wind blowing west to east. The wind begins on the withered heath, passes over the mountains, rolls down onto a great forest, on which shadows lay by night and day, sweeps across lake and marshland, and then over the mountain. The explicit identification of the Lonely Mountain in stanza 5 makes it reasonably clear that the Misty Mountains, Mirkwood, and the Long Lake region are intended in the earlier stanzas. In other words, the path that this great wind is blowing is suspiciously parallel to the journey of the dwarves and Bilbo. This suggests the reading that the song is a bit of bravado on the part of the dwarves, a kind of poetic pep talk or confidence booster. We know that the dwarves are nervous at the prospect of setting out to cross through Mirkwood, the worst of the perils they had to pass before they came to the dragon's stronghold. It would doubtless be cheering to imagine their own still quite doubtful journey towards the mountain as rolling along on the winds of fate, tossing the forest of Mirkwood and frightening the evil creatures in it into stillness. If we were to connect Smaug with the smoke rising from the lonely mountain, then the idea of that smoke flying in the face of that wind would be especially gratifying. If we keep this parallel between the passage of the wind and the journey of the dwarves in mind, however, we find that the song takes rather an unexpected turn at the end. Listen to the last stanza again. It left the world and took its flight over the wide seas of the night. The moon set sail upon the gale, and stars were fanned to leaping light. The end point of the journey is not the lonely mountain. The wind continues on into the heavens, blowing the moon along its regular course and, in a marvelously dwarfish metaphor, fanning the stars into flame. The final celestial destination of the wind may also help to draw attention to where the wind came from. Although we join the path of the wind only in what is presumably the greater Eriador region before it crosses the mountains, it is a wind out of the west, which has been progressing, as the song emphasizes, from west to east. What we get in this song, therefore, is not just a poetic dramatization and optimistic glorification of the dwarf's journey, but a contextualization. The song suggests that the quest for the Lonely Mountains and the Dwarves' treasure is in fact only a part of a much larger celestial movement orchestrated by some higher and greater power. Now, if we've been reading The Hobbit carefully, this idea is something that we should already have begun to suspect. Fortune, and indeed misfortune, have already played a very prominent role in guiding their steps on this journey. Although Gandalf and Elrond guide them to the right road to the right pass through the Misty Mountains, they get diverted by the goblins, and they end up coming out of the mountains too far to the north, leaving them with some awkward country ahead, and nowhere near the old forest road that Gandalf had been shooting for. This seems like a bad thing. 
But they learn from Bjorn that the old forest road would not have been any good, for it is now often used by the goblins, while the forest road itself, he had heard, was overgrown at the eastern end, and led to impassable marshes where the paths had long been lost. It seems that this apparent bad fortune was really good fortune after all. This, of course, will happen again when the dwarves and Bilbo make the nearly disastrous and highly ill-advised decision to leave the forest road in Mirkwood and end up getting captured by the elves, their journey once again sidetracked. This, too, results in unexpected good fortune, though, bringing them by chance to the only viable way through Mirkwood to the mountain. At several points we can see the evidence to support the idea that Gandalf finally makes explicit on the last page of the book, when he asks whether Bilbo really supposed that all of his adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck. Thus the song gives a glimpse of a theme only just beginning to emerge clearly in the narrative as a whole. Just as the Goblin Song provides a visceral insight into the Goblin character that augments the subsequent prose description, so the Wind Song primes readers to perceive the supernatural coordination of events, which becomes increasingly evident throughout the book, until Gandalf openly alludes to it in the closing lines. This is why you should always read the poems carefully. That concludes my first paper. The second panel I sat on was on the subject of teaching Tolkien, and I was one of several people who were sharing their experiences with Tolkien classes and the various issues and challenges that arise in them. My own paper was called Tolkien's Typology, or Why I Always Teach the Silmarillion First. Tolkien's Typology When Michael Drought was visiting Washington College in April, he and I got into a brief debate which we didn't get a chance to finish. The debate involved sequencing in a Tolkien course, specifically whether the Silmarillion should be taught first, before The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, or after them. Now, it's possible to let simple pragmatism answer this question for you. If you want to increase your enrollment, wait to spring the Silmarillion on them until it's too late and they are more or less trapped. If you want to set in motion an accelerated Darwinian process that will weed out the weak and timorous and hone your roster down to its truly dedicated core, teach the Silmarillion first. There are also, of course, legitimate pedagogical arguments to be made on both sides. In our abbreviated debate, Drought took the Silmarillion last position due to his desire to discuss with his students the perception of depth that comes from not recognizing the references to the ancient tales and heroes that Tolkien makes throughout his stories. I totally respect this argument, and I agree that the perception of depth is a very valuable thing. However, I myself am a firm Silmarillion first advocate, and today I'm going to lay out for you my rationale. In my mind, the primary benefit of teaching the Silmarillion first is the way in which it opens up for students the typological structure of Tolkien's fiction. Now, don't be afraid. This paper is not going in a Gandalf-is-Jesus direction. I do think that Tolkien stories contain quite a bit of biblical typology of a very thoughtful kind. I find the resonance between the kinslaying and the story of Cain and Abel, or between the downfall of Numenor and the fall of Adam and Eve, really fascinating. But my interest is not in this kind of typology, what I call external typology. My interest is in internal typology, the typological shape of Tolkien's legendarium itself. In the Ainu Lindale, Tolkien tells the creation myth of his world. Remember the sequence of creation. First, the Ainur sing the great music. Then, Iluvatar shows them the vision, making their music, the substance and history of Arda, visible before them. Then the vision is removed, and Iluvatar gives being to the world, and the Valar enter it. Notice what happens next. But when the Valar entered Ea, they were at first astounded and at a loss, 
for it was as if naught was yet made which they had seen in vision, and all was but on point to begin, and yet unshaped, and it was dark. For the great music had been but the growth and flowering of thought in the timeless halls, and the vision only a foreshowing. But now they had entered in at the beginning of time, and the Valar perceived that the world had been but foreshadowed and foresung, and they must achieve it. Tolkien emphasizes that the whole history of Middle-earth is a recapitulation, foresung in the music and foreshadowed in the vision, a rearticulation of an ancient theme. Since all stories are connected within this harmonic structure, it is not surprising that we should find many echoes and repetitions among them. If your students read the Silmarillion before they read The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, then they can be made to see this trend, which adds a remarkable level of richness to the stories. Let me give one of my favorite examples. Frodo is being held captive somewhere in the Tower of Kirithungal, and Sam is searching for him. At last, Sam is feeling finally defeated, and his torch goes out, pretty much finishing his chances of finding his master. And then softly, to his own surprise, there at the vain end of his long journey and his grief, moved by what thought in his heart he could not tell, Sam began to sing. He sings first old childish tunes out of the Shire, and snatches of Mr. Bilbo's rhymes that came into his mind like fleeting glimpses of the country of his home. At this point, for some reason, a new strength rose in him, and his voice rang out while words of his own came unbidden to fit the simple tune. Notice all of the emphasis on Sam's strange inspiration here. Why is all this happening? What is causing Sam to burst into song? The first stanza of his new song tells of the beauty to be found in western lands. In the second stanza, Sam launches into what the narrator will later describe as a song of defiance. Though here at journey's end I lie in darkness buried deep, beyond all towers strong and high, beyond all mountains steep, above all shadows rides the sun, and stars forever dwell. I will not say the day is done, nor bid the stars farewell. Sam asserts the relative smallness and comparative powerlessness of the shadow and its towers, compared to the sun and the stars, which dwell forever above them and outside them. Upon this important metaphysical assertion, an assertion of hope in the Pauline sense, Sam hears Frodo's voice responding faintly to his song, and his search for his master is over. Now, I love this scene, and I think it's an important moment in the discussion of the nature of hope that I like to have throughout The Return of the King. But because my students have read The Silmarillion at this point, they will also see more to it. For they will remember, or I will remind them, of a strikingly similar moment they've read before. Baron is being held captive somewhere in Tall and Gowerhoff, and Luthien is searching for him. When Luthien arrives, she sings a song that no walls of stone could hinder, and Baron replies. In answer, he sang a song of challenge that he had made in praise of the seven stars, the sickle of the Valar that Varda had hung above the north as a sign for the fall of Morgoth. Then all strength left him, and he fell down into darkness. But Luthien heard his answering voice, and she sang then a song of greater power. Luthien will go on to perform an extreme makeover, Beleriand edition, at Tol and Gaurhoth, installing some skylights in the dungeons. The stories are not exactly the same, of course. Here it is the prisoner who sings the Song of Defiance, for instance. But the connections are clear and significant. The song and response that reveals the prisoner. The verses about the stars, which speak confidently, despite the circumstances, of the ultimate defeat of evil. But why stop here? With a little prodding, my students should also remember another and even more strikingly similar moment from earlier in the Silmarillion. 
Mythros is being held captive somewhere in the mountains of Thangoradrim, and Fingon is searching for him. After climbing all around the dark mountains, Fingon too is feeling finally defeated. Then, in defiance of the orcs, he took his harp and sang a song of Valinor that the Noldor made of old, before strife was born among the sons of Finwë, and his voice rang in the mournful hollows that had never heard before aught save cries of fear and woe. Thus Fingon found what he sought, for suddenly above him far and faint his song was taken up, and a voice answering called to him. Mythros it was that sang amid his torment. The story of Mythros and Fingon is extremely closely parallel to Frodo and Sam's story, although you have to swap out an eagle for an orc carrying a ladder and ignore the fact that Sam seems to have gone climbing the mountains of shadow without his harp. Now, the big question is, what do we get out of all this? Connecting the dots this way is, of course, a great deal of fun and could be adapted into an exceptionally geeky parlor game, but what value exactly do your students get from it? The first benefit is that Sam's scene, already deeply moving, is made much deeper and more powerful. Comparing this moment with its Silmarillion analogs provides new insight into the significance of its details. The childish songs of the Shire that come into Sam's mind operate like Fingon's songs of Valinor before the rebellion of the Noldor, recalling amidst darkness and the temptation to despair a world of beauty and safety and love and innocence. Sam's new and extemporaneous Song of Defiance, lyrics by S. Gamgee, gains in power when it's heard in harmony with the song Baron composes about the inescapable doom of the Dark Lord. Sam might not sound at all like an elf lord when he sings, but his own small voice, the voice of a forlorn and weary hobbit, is not alone when he declares that he will not bid the stars farewell. Although he doesn't know it, he is singing in harmony with Baron's song of victory and with Luthien's irresistible song of uncovering and liberation. When we hear all these echoes behind Sam's singing, we probably cease to be surprised that this music all just seems to flow out of him unbidden, for reasons he himself doesn't understand. At this moment, Sam is enacting anew a story written thousands of years before, or, to be more precise, he is giving voice to a refrain recurring many times in the music sung before the creation of the world. The second benefit goes well beyond the enrichment of any particular scene. When students get the knack of seeing these repeated types, their attention can more easily be drawn to the themes and archetypes to which they point. Students can move beyond appreciation of the Lord of the Rings to a glimpse of some pretty big things, the celebration of high beauty that is beyond the reach of the shadow, the recognition of the certainty of the doom of evil, the connection between this hope and freedom, release from bondage, the song of defiant hope joining and reuniting loved ones whom the darkness would seek to keep apart. Once your students become accustomed to reading Tolkien typologically, their ears can be trained to pick out the chords and progressions of which Iluvatar's great themes are composed. And so, another year and another fine gathering at Kalamazoo was complete. I hope you enjoyed these, and I'll be back soon with more episodes. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.